the people power and join us as we tackle the issues impacting our nation as we fight to protect our democracy in our multiracial working class world. Topics and issues at the top of your mind, the bottom of your wallet, and deep in your soul. Let's talk. Just solutions on Free Speech TV. Welcome to another edition of Just Solutions. I'm your host, Gloria Neal. So this week, my guest has devoted really their time, their treasure, their talents, all developing and improving transparency around environmental justice and social impact. Deandra Marisette Esparza is the executive director of the Intersectional Environmentalist, which is a climate justice collective. Welcome to the show, Deandra. Hi, thank you so much for having me. It is good to see you. Good to see you. So when you say environmental justice and social impact, black communities as well as impoverished communities, you know, they always appear to be at a disadvantage. How does this happen over and over again? And let me even take you back further. Perhaps explain what an environmentalist as it or intersectionality of an environmentalist, what does that mean? Yeah, absolutely. So just starting with what an intersectional environmentalist is, I think that growing up, many of us that are, you know, have a little bit of familiarity with what it means to be just an environmentalist today might associate that with different practices and belief systems that make you want to live in such a way that protects wildlife, protects, you know, maybe supports conservation efforts, uh, and maybe eats a plant-based lifestyle. But to be an intersectional environmentalist means to really identify those who, like you were saying, are the most marginalized people in the context of different issues and really center that, use an intersectional lens to really center that as something that makes you a stronger environmentalist. People are absolutely a part of the environment for a long time. We've separated ourselves from this notion of environment by saying people and planet, people and planet. And while it's perfectly all fine and well to, to say that, we very much are deeply connected um, to our environment. So it's really important that we use an intersectional lens to make sure that we are addressing those most vulnerable to the different systems that we're creating, the different ways that we navigate the development of our society and how we deeply inform alongside those communities the solutions that we bring to some of the issues we're facing today. You know, the, the biggest piece of this particular pie is most people don't understand just in layman's terms, right? When you start talking about environmental justice or the social impact of not even having infrastructure of neighborhoods that are being newly built in, in impoverished areas versus those that are built in well-established or well-to-do areas. Give an example of why that's significant. Absolutely. I definitely think that there's a lot of, um, I don't want to say misinformation, I think just a lack of awareness and information and likely very much so by design that a lot of marginalized communities, black, indigenous and people of color communities that do live in lower income areas that are under-resourced are done so by the design of our systems. And I think that it's really, really powerful when we can recognize that many of those systems are in the industries that we even find ourselves in. So if you are in, say, if you're in an engineering space, right, or you have an engineering background, that looks like uncovering the fact that certain highways were built at a certain height to prevent prevent buses from actually going under them and through them. And that 
was designed in such a way to prevent certain people from entering well-to-do areas. So this is systemic racism being implemented into um, our infrastructure in a really real way, something that impacts the way that we move on a very, very daily basis. And I've absolutely been in a, a position of privilege to be running, you know, IE, as we call intersectional environmentalists for short, and learn from so many incredible people that are basically just trying to lift the veil. So the example that I just gave, actually um, I learned from my co-director, Kiana Kazemi, who has an engineering background. So it's been really, really critical, I think, to us as a society to look at the ways that so many of our backgrounds, our backgrounds in tech, our backgrounds in fashion, our backgrounds in agriculture have so many stories behind them that can help reveal how so many of these systems that we've developed layer up very, very deeply. So, so, so many layers um, that reveal how um, communities have been left out of having access to things that we really need to thrive on a daily basis. That is so very true when you look at policing, right? And people say, well, oh my goodness, how can that be systemic? If you look at the origins of policing in this country, right? I mean, you think about runaway slaves and you think about all of policing was born out of that. And so when you talk about innocent until proven guilty, well, that depends on the melanin in your skin, right? When you get pulled over or when you're stopped or when you're asked questions or detained. The same thing applies here because I've had, you know, individuals say to me, well, Glow, when they were making this neighborhood or building it or even planning it out, they couldn't have been thinking, well, you know, we're prejudiced and we're going to... I said, no, 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 it's way deeper than that. It's baked in the cake. It's like it's already in the flour. So here's what I'll ask you, Deandra. If you were a politician and you had a developer approach you about building real affordable housing in your city, what would be the first thing you would require that developer to do in order to do business in your city? That's a really good question, and I think it is really important that we start with politicians that really recognize that these uh, neighborhoods that our, our vulnerable communities are in, it's not the case that we coincidentally ended up there. I think recognition is step one. So I, and I love using the example of air pollution for, uh, as an example from Houston, where my family's from, and air pollution is certainly an issue that targets a lot of communities. Communities of color are often reallocated to those air areas systemically. And then at the same time, air pollution is also systemically reallocated to those communities. So it is absolutely by design and it's not a coincidence. And I think that recognition would be step one to even getting in the door and having the conversation. But step two um, to actually considering something like that, I think leaning on community is the most powerful thing when it comes to addressing environmental justice issues. So the first thing I would require is an understanding of how involved the key stakeholders are in the development of affordable housing. So how are local indigenous communities and you know local vulnerable communities being brought into the development to ensure sustainable and affordable housing won't further perpetuate issues like gentrification and that local historical issues are being considered um, like the ones that we just talked about with air pollution and certain fossil fuel plants and things that are causing these air pollution issues and how they are being zoned in areas that are deemed you know okay when it comes to bringing air pollution issues to people so that would probably be step one is how involved vulnerable communities and key stakeholders are in in the project 
Right. And, you know, you have a lot of developers um, in this particular lane who will say, yes, we're building affordable housing. But in the fine print, you'll see it's affordable housing for 10, 15 years. It is not affordable housing in perpetuity, which, in my opinion, it should be, again, not anti-profit, but I'm definitely anti-greed. Talk about where that line is for, again, we're coming into your city, we want to do business with the city, the incentivizing them to make that, you know, you're an affordable housing qualifier. So you're the person who qualifies, you move into the house and you say, okay, 15 years down the road, great, wonderful, I want to move out. The next person who's moving in, it's not going to be affordable, it's going to be market value. That's not really affordable housing. A lot of this stuff is baked into the cake. How do we address that as cities, as neighborhoods? before the contracts are signed. <laughs> right, right. Well, I think that what makes that question difficult is the way that we raise and lower market value of things like home purchases based on race. So I, I it's something that was unfortunately not surprising, but still incredibly appalling is some of the case studies that we saw this past year of black homeowners trying to sell their homes. Um, because a lot of people, it's, it was a home seller's market for a hot minute this past year. And there were black homeowners that gave a double take to how their homes were being valued and then turned around and had their white neighbors pose in front of their houses and have them reevaluated only to find that their homes were actually worth so much more when a white person was standing in front of them than a black person. That's so we have to recognize that so much of our systems and the way we quote unquote economically value things is still being harmed by our inequitable belief systems that are so, so deeply rooted in environmental injustice, anti-blackness, racism. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that we can't even answer that question without tackling the, how our belief systems are informing the development of these right. projects. Right, yeah, they are undervalued or when you're getting ready to sell your house and they tell you, well, you know, you wanna take that art down or take this art down or, you know, you wanna be just kind of a generic, um, that kind of thing. And yeah, I've, I've experienced that, you know, myself. Of course, I also have the, you know, the fortune of having the right real estate agent um, who knows, don't ask me to take anything down this. I get that you're trying to sell the house and people want to see themselves in it, but what you're not going to get is an individual who is going to um, dumb it down so we can sell it for what it's actually worth. I mean, th it is ridiculous, some of the things we go through. But the, the, the gap between the haves and the have-nots, it is not sustainable with where we are. How this factors into today's political climate. Talk to me a little bit about this gap and helping people to understand, well, you know, that's not happening to me, you know, so it's not my problem. It is your problem. When it comes to the climate crisis, it's for folks who do have the resources that they need, it can seem like a really far away issue. But the reality is that the climate crisis is here. There are already uh, so, so, so many communities that are having their homes destroyed by intensifi the intensification of natural disasters, right? We see that a lot in here in the U.S., you know, along the coast of um, like Florida, Texas, Louisiana. You know, I, I grew up again with my family in Houston and natural disasters are only going to become an increased issue, increasing issue. And then on the coast of California, we see the intensification of fires. And so I think that one thing to keep in mind for those who feel like climate change is 
maybe a very, very far away issue is that the systems that are failing the people who are currently being impacted by the climate crisis, they're going to fail fast and they're going to fail fast towards you. So that would be what I hope somebody could take away as they are watching the news and kind of disassociating a bit from, which I can completely appreciate is sometimes a a healthy thing to do when <laughs> you're being bombarded on a daily basis with, you know, climate doom in a way. Um, it's important to maintain climate optimism, but I, I do think that paying attention to the intensification of climate change on certain communities and really, really wrapping your head around how quickly that's coming for your neighborhood as well is, is so important and making sure so that we can have more productive conversations about how we're nipping these issues in the bud and, and building sustainable solutions that are going to help people, uh, communities be more resilient to, you know, the inevitable, which is the storms and the droughts and the fires and things like that. I think, you know, one of the biggest things about this, and I know we talk about, you know, the growing force of Gen Z in the environmental space and politically and as organizers. But let me let me ask you something as it relates to Gen Z. We look at so much of what we are doing, right, because Gen Z is that generation that's now saying, you know what, company, unless you believe in what I'm passionate about, you won't get my services unless you understand that your product or what you are doing is, you know, not helping underserved communities or you're not showing up in the communities that where I am, whether it's LGBTQ+, whether it is, you know, fill in the blank for any underserved group, how do we get that intersectional environmentalist piece in there? Because I think each one of us should be an intersectional environmentalist. You're absolutely right with regards to Gen Z and their sentiments towards, you know, exploitative systems that have propped up corporations in America for a really long time. And I think that the answer is to continue to chip away layer by layer. Um, it's really ineffective to imagine that there is a one size fits all solution because injustice and exploitation has economically engined this country since its birth. So it should be the expectation that we really have to tackle it layer by layer. And I think that from a sentiment standpoint, we like to think that justice is on the rise and in many ways it is, but we are still sitting in a very serious point of tension where we're going to, where we're either going to slow down because we keep hearing over and over again that the narrative of equity and inclusion and justice is exhausting or we're gonna continue speaking to how our systems and belief systems are actively being silenced and are actively preventing us from achieving environmental justice. You know, Take the recent expulsion of Tennessee representatives, Justin Jones and Justin J. Pearson, for example. They raised their voices against gun violence and were immediately silenced, removed from their positions. Take the recent book bans in America. You know, Two million students across 86 school districts throughout the country have had their access to books restricted due to book bans in just the 2021 to 2022 academic school year. And this was actually the highest number of attempted book bans since the American Library Association began producing the, their top 10 most challenged books lists 20 years ago. And also you can look to the recent anti-trans bills in Texas banning medical transition care for transgender youth in a time when the trans community has been grappling with so much police violence tied to a legacy of police violence towards trans communities. So as a community, we have to keep showing up. We have to keep telling our stories. We have to keep calling out corporations and politicians. And we have to find the small, meaningful ways that we can 
reclaim our climate optimism and really say no to extractive ways of life to find joy and purpose within our own communities so that this movement is sustainable for all of us. And I think that can look like things that many of us do have access to now, like starting our own garden, um, making sure to celebrate each other's you know, reclamation of cultural journeys and going to farmers markets and things like that. So never, never, um, forgetting the the small ways that we can fight as well. Absolutely. Never forgetting where we've come from. I think really that encapsulates so much. And we don't, we don't, I, I often think about this anytime I'm speaking before a group, I always, always pay homage to um, Native Americans whose land we are all over, right? We are standing on their land, if we're being honest about this. And so to your point, what's happening on reservations or those who live near reservations, women and the alcoholism, there's so much. And I don't want it lost in any of the conversation, whether we're dealing with black, brown, you know, LGBTQ plus underserved communities, period. It makes such a big difference. But as an intersectional environmentalist, Deandra, explain the state of work and your experience as it relates to the future, right? Because if we, if, if we believe or just resonate, right, just stew in what we hear every day, we think, oh my goodness, if I go outside, the sky is falling. It's not falling, but it definitely needs a little support, like put on some support hose. There's a lot that we are doing wrong, but are there some things that we're doing right? I absolutely think that there are some things that are, that are going quite well. And I think over the past few years in even just building IE, I obviously have been paying attention to the environmental justice space for longer than that. But since being a little bit more involved with IE, it's been really incredible to see how businesses, you know, small and large are really trying to root their efforts in grassroots efforts. So really trying to see how they can support community agency as opposed to reinventing the wheel. Something that I think gives me a lot of hope and I also can think can be a guiding star in a way to people that want to get more involved is to rest assured that many of the solutions we're looking for already exist and they're located you'll find them in local communities where issues are being perpetuated by systems of oppression there are so many beautiful solutions community driven solutions on the ground and I think that that is the best the best place to get involved. And I, I do think that a lot of um, more traditional nonprofits that have been propped up by capitalism uh, and large corporations and businesses are, are trying to root themselves um, in, in supporting grassroots efforts as opposed to trying to reinvent new solutions when we're learning that they're, they've been here all along. That is a good point. You know, one of the things that I absolutely love about the situation in Tennessee, voting them out only shines the light more on the absurdity of this tail wagging the dog. You know, it's like you're going to push them out, expel, expel them for something that they really should be receiving awards from. And then if you think about that, you think, well, how are we even here? They shouldn't even have to do that. You know, if you're talking about, you know, six people losing their lives, three of which were under the age of 10 years old, haven't even been on the planet a decade that are no longer here, and that is being repeated and repeated and repeated, and will continue to be repeated until we do something. Um, I, I have one more question, but I think overall, and I want to get your take on this, because I think without responsibility, 
you really are not free. And I see a lot of people want freedom and they talk about that, but they, they are not, or we are not, since I'm on the big blue marble too, we are not responsive to the responsibilities that come along with freedom. And that could very well be our demise. We want everything all at once when we want it, but there's a price to pay for that. Yeah, I, I think that I like your point in the beginning about what's happening in Tennessee. What we're seeing across a lot of the issues that we've touched on is that many conservative and Republican leaders are saying the quiet parts out loud, right? We're, we're up against that right now. And I think that that does position us really well to change the hearts of a lot of people, right? I think that when we're willing to well, not we, but when people who don't really understand the issues around environmental justice or do really want to double down on racist belief systems, it does create opportunity for us to show what is possible on the other side of that, as opposed to the past when the quiet parts weren't said out loud, um, it, it creates an ambiguous environment where we're trying to figure out what the problem is and then we end up being able to deny that certain issues exist. Like racism doesn't exist, no one's saying the racist thing. Or transphobia doesn't exist, no one's saying the transphobic thing. No, these things are being said out loud now. And maybe in part because older generations don't know how rapidly things can spread online, but um, needless to say, it's here and it is an opportunity that we can seize. And in addition to that, on your note of responsibility, I think that it's a really healthy time to reassess our relationship to that word, responsibility. Um, a book that I read recently that I recommend that I, I really, really enjoyed called Joyful Militancy. The name's a little intense, but it was, it was a very worthwhile read. Uh, that book talks about how we have learned the word responsibility to be, or to, we've learned to equate that with a sense of obligation when really it's our ability to respond to what's in front of us. And when it comes to freedom, we've been taught that that word, we've been taught a very individualistic view of that word, freedom. Freedom means I get to be my own individual. Well, yes, but in a pre-colonial context, the word freedom is actually connected to our ability to freely engage in connection to one another. So now when you reframe those two words, you see how systems of oppression have really broken down our ability to respond to one another, our responsibility to each other. And it, that has really harmed the way that we care for each other, the way we even have the tools and resources to care for one another. So that would be what I have to say on really healing our relationship to those two words. Hmm. That was that was beautiful because you're absolutely right. I mean, it is the greater good, you know. If if we were all being as free as we are talking about, right? What we're experiencing now, this individualistic freedom, I always say, I think the universe would have given us our own little planet, each of us. <laughs> There's a reason why we are all here together needing one another. And if you, you know, didn't believe that before COVID, I know a lot of people believe it now. So where are the legislative opportunities for um, the intersectional environmentalist and how do folks help in that fight? As we've been touching on, a lot of opportunities are, are arising because of how transparently racism and transphobia and all of these you know, oppressive belief systems are surfacing in the political sphere. I think that those are the opportunities we have to seize to continue to, yes, work to change people's hearts, 
but also really, really lean on our environmental justice um, allies in the legal space, in the policy spaces. I know that um, so many incredible people have been really trying to demystify what it means uh, to tackle these issues, for, to tackle environmental justice issues in the context of the legal space, in the context of the finance space, in the context of you know, the academic space. So I would say that demystifying a lot of things is really going to help. And if you're in a position, if you're a student, if you're a professor, if you're a teacher, if you're a parent, you, you are absolutely in a position to help those around you demystify you know, some of those things so that these spaces are a little bit more accessible. I think ultimately that will help to more political advocacy and more grassroots mobilization, which is absolutely what we read we need right now. That way we have youth feeling empowered to show up when people are removed from office or to show up and um, run, you know, book drives and start little local libraries and things like that whenever book bans are really harming our access to our cultural stories, our heritage and the historical legacies that have brought us to where we are today. Yeah, and that is extremely powerful. Thank you so very much. You were you were wonderful. Tell us how we can get in touch with your efforts, what you're doing, because it's all about solutions on just solutions. And so we want to make sure we give you an opportunity to plug your work. Absolutely. You can check out Intersectional Environmentalist on Instagram at Intersectional Environmentalist. We also have the Intersectional Environmentalist website. I encourage you to check that out if you want to learn more about some of the resources that we've created to help empower youth, students, professors, teachers, and businesses um, in unpacking what intersectional environmentalism means in the context of topics that might be near and dear to your heart, like fashion, beauty, agriculture, and more. Thank you so much for joining us here on Just Solutions. We really appreciate it. Thank you. Dandra Marisette Esparza, thank you so very much for coming on. This was, this was a wonderful, wonderful treat. Intersectional environmentalist, and I am so thrilled that I had you on the show today. Next week, it'll be all about the solutions. First, though, we always have to talk about the problem. So thank you for joining me. Until next week, I'm your host, Gloria Neal, and this is Just Solutions.